This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Amanda Huron, author of Carving Out the Commons, Tenant Organizing and Housing Cooperatives in Washington, D.C., from the University of Minnesota Press. Amanda, welcome. Thank you so much. So before we talk about the book itself, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and how it is you came to this particular project? Sure. Um, Well, the book is about uh, the history and current um, struggles of tenants in Washington, D.C., who have worked together to buy their buildings from their landlords and turn them into a special form of housing cooperative that's affordable over the long term um, for low-income people in the city. And I came to this project, um, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and in a neighborhood um, called Mount Pleasant that when I was growing up there was uh, um, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city, um, both in terms of race and ethnicity and uh, income and class. And um, and over the years, that neighborhood has really thoroughly gentrified. Um, and so for me, uh, part of my concern with gentrification and low-income people really being, being pushed around by the forces of capital came from seeing that firsthand growing up in this neighborhood where I grew up um, and seeing it really change dramatically over the years to the point where now it's the kind of place where um, you need to have a million dollars to buy a home. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of a, a personal um, experience for me just kind of growing up there and growing up in, in Washington, D.C. more broadly um, and seeing how the city has changed over the years. Um, and I've, I've long been concerned with um, questions of how lower income people survive in cities, in expensive cities. Um, and so that was kind of where I got interested broadly in questions of gentrification and tenant organizing in response to that. Um, I also worked for a number of years in the early 2000s, um, worked for a couple of years in the early 2000s for an organization that was working on affordable housing policy in the city. And through my work with that organization, um, I became aware of these limited equity housing cooperatives, these housing co-ops that tenants had purchased collectively from their landlords. Um, And so I got to know a number of folks who were co-op leaders, um, and I really became interested in these housing co-ops as a way for tenants to take control over land and housing, um, even in the midst of gentrification. Um, and so it was through my professional work, um, working with these co-ops that I got interested specifically in these co-ops as a, as an organized response to displacement and as a way to prevent displacement. 
Um, and yeah, and then I, I ended up going to grad school a couple of years after that experience working with those co-ops and realized I really wanted to dive more deeply into the questions of how these co-ops had come about and what their struggles were, how they were kind of able to maintain themselves and in some cases failed to maintain themselves over time. Right. So, so um, one of the things that that I appreciate, one of the many things that I appreciate about the book is is the the sort of the facility with which you bounce back and forth between that practical description of actual sort of tenant struggles in order to to build these these forms uh, of organization and housing and um, and sort of bouncing around in a number of different ways in theoretical literature in a couple of different traditions. So I wonder if we might start just by doing a little brush clearing around some of the the, the broader and the theoretical questions. Um, so what is a commons and, and why should we care about it? And how is it different to be thinking about a commons in an urban environment? Great question. Um, so a commons, there's there's different ways to understand what a commons is, but the way that I understand it, and this is based on how many other scholars have theorized the commons um, over the years, is really that a commons is marked by two key traits. Um, it's a it can be seen as a resource that is um, has been essentially decommodified, so more or less removed from the market. Now, not necessarily 100% decommodified. That's not always possible. Um, but essentially has been removed from the speculative market. Um, and so the purpose of this resource is not to serve as an investment vehicle, but really more as a, um, a means, a sort of direct support for life, in this case, housing. Um, so instead of the housing serving as a way for someone to profit, the housing serves simply as a, a place for someone to live. Um, so it's been decommodified. And second, a commons is collectively governed. And so in many cases, um, that also means collectively owned, um, although ownership can can start to sort of break apart as a term once you kind of dig dig it dig, dig deeply into it. Um, but so for me, what's important about a commons is that it's, it's been decommodified, um, it's collectively owned. And then importantly, part of that too, is it's not really just an inert resource that's kind of sitting there. It is um, socially governed by uh, the people who make it up. So the practice of commoning um, is important to keep in mind when we think about a commons. It's really a social practice. And and I mean, you're talking about about you know sort of forms of a commons in D.C. Right. Uh, it's fairly unusual in literature for us to be talking about commons in cities. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And so that was. You know, and when I started doing this research, frankly, I was not thinking in terms of a commons. Um, I was interested in um, in these co-ops, and I was interested in what um, the benefits were for people of living in these co-ops, and what the challenges were, and why it was that um, people stuck it out in these co-ops. What was it about it that was was good for them, that worked for them? But I wasn't thinking in terms of this idea of the commons. Um, and so it wasn't until I started interviewing people and listening to what they were saying and how they were talking about um, their housing that I realized like, huh, I think this might be um, a form of the commons. But, um, you know, there's in recent years, there's been more written about sort of commons in cities and urban commons. But at the time that I started these interviews, which was back in uh, 2010, 11, um, there hadn't there had been less discussion of commons in cities. And so my real exposure to the idea of a commons at that point was in a more um, context of natural resources and small, rural, more traditional, quote unquote, traditional communities 
Um, and there have been lots and lots of case studies, thousands of case studies documenting how rural people um, collectively work together to maintain and govern uh, their sort of more natural resources like fish pools um, over time or forests or meadows. So there's lots of research that's looked at that and how people have been able to do that to maintain these commons over time. Um, but less research looking at how that happened in cities. And so what for me was interesting was not just to think about a commons in a city, sort of like, you know, oh, this commons is within the <laughs> political boundary of Washington, D.C., therefore it's an urban commons, but really more thinking about, well, what's what might be theoretically distinct about an urban commons? And so for me, what I think is theoretically distinct about it is, one, that an urban commons requires um, a diversity of strangers to come together to create, maintain this resource over time. And so that's very different from how commons have, have been theorized um, in general, because uh, broadly speaking, commons tend to have been theorized as groups of people who, as Eleanor Ostrom, who has you know, won the Nobel Prize for her work um, in uh, on the commons, she describes it as um, a community of people who share a past and expect to share a future, or the community of people who tend to... Um, collectively govern a commons. Now in a city, you know, we do certainly do have communities of people who have long roots in urban neighborhoods and, and stay there for generations. But in general, cities are marked by more transience and more change and people moving in and out. So one of my questions was, is it possible to maintain a commons in an urban environment where you have this kind of change happening? And you have a lot of, and one of the you know, definitions of urban life is that it's made up of strangers. You don't know everyone right. who you pass by every day. So, so how is it that we can, is it possible even to do this in a city? So that's one um, component of, of the sort of urban nature of the commons, urban commons. So, so. I, I, I'm thinking of, of, right, sort of the classic, uh, I, mean, I think probably lots of grad students encountered the tragedy of the commons, the classic yeah, kind of yeah. economic formulation. And that would suggest that 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 it's incredibly difficult, even in these sort of of uh, the, uh, the 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 Ostromian way of, of thinking about right the rural commons where everybody knows each other and already have this collective identity. That that sort of traditional thinking already suggests that this is a really hard thing to do, as you've just indicated. Theoretically, an, an urban common should be almost impossible, um, right. <laughs> and yet they happen, right? Can you talk a little bit about, so maybe talk a little bit about your cases and tell us a little bit about um, how, against all odds, people without much by way of resources do come together and create these forms of, of self-governing uh, affordable housing. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, for the most part, people do start off as strangers. Um, so in, in the cases where I looked at, so I looked at um, 10 different housing cooperatives in Washington, D.C., and I really tried to select these 10 different cases to get a broad range of experience. Um, there's there's many of these co-ops in D.C., but I, I just chose 10 to represent a range of um, size and age and geographic diversity within the city and um the diversity of, of membership to kind of capture that range. Um, and in all cases, you know, these, in all but one, actually, these um, co-ops started off as just rental buildings. Um, and in most cases, the tenants, you know, did not particularly know each other very well when they were renters in these buildings. 
And they, um, they were all just sort of, you know, relatively randomly happened to be living in these buildings. And then, um, the, the city, the, the reason we have these so many of these co-ops in the city is because the city has a law that gives tenants the first opportunity to purchase their housing if the landlord puts it up for sale. And so, um, and that law came about because, as I write about in the book, came about because of all this tenant organizing um, uh, to, to counter displacement in the city in the late 70s. And so we have this unusual law that gives tenants the opportunity to purchase. And so what these tenants did was they, when their buildings went up for sale, they took advantage of this law to um, collectively purchase their buildings. And it was really through the process of coming together to purchase their buildings that they became to, they, they came to know each other. And so it was this really through this collective labor of seizing the commons is what, is what created relationships among people and created this sort of care for each other that they, um, that then kind of powered them through a, what's always a very uh, tiring and difficult process of actually purchasing and renovating a building um, with other low-income tenants. Um, and so they, they started off as strangers, but they, they built these relationships through this collective work of creating the commons together um, or of kind of seizing the commons. And I mean, are there, there, I mean, I'm interested in 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 teasing out, you know, maybe two sets of of lessons. One is, you know, how to over what are what are the obstacles to forming uh, these kinds of limited equity housing cooperatives in the first place, uh, and then second, uh, sort of, uh, what are the challenges to sustain them over time? Um, yeah, I mean, can you sort of talk a little bit about maybe some of the particular cases in 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 if, if there are others elsewhere interested in, in doing similar sorts of things, what should they know uh, uh, from what you know about uh, the successful efforts in D.C.? Yeah. Um, well, I think, I mean, one thing, like I mentioned, this law that we have um, that, yeah. that gives right, the tenants the right. It's going to be hard to replicate. <laughs> it's going to be hard to replicate. Although, you know, it's interesting. I've just, as an aside, I've been going around the country and doing book talks um, this spring, and I've talked to a number of uh, tenant organizers in cities like Portland um, and San Francisco that are uh, and Los Angeles that are trying to get a similar law on the books in their cities. Um, so one of my hopes with this book is that it can, um, that we can you know, sort of share some of the successes in DC and that people in other cities can learn from it, um, both in terms of the kind of organizing effort, but also in terms of the legal framework that's enabled these co-ops to arise. Now that said, um, tenants, uh, under this model, tenants have the first right to purchase the building if the landlord puts it up for sale, but tenants still have to come up with um, what's called a bona fide uh, sale price. And so the, you know, they have to be able to pay what the landlord is asking for, essentially, as long as it's deemed a bona fide offer of sale. And so they're essentially paying market rate prices for these uh, buildings. Um, and so that was more feasible to do in the <laughs> 80s and 90s in D.C., um, right. than it is today. And that's now there are still tenant associations using this right to purchase their buildings, but it's pretty rare. You know, you might have a, a couple every year do it now in DC. Um, and so I don't know that this TOPA, as it's known, law is really going to be the best way for people to preserve affordable housing right. in other gentrifying cities. But, um, you know, but I still, I, I still do think that there, there might be other ways to start these limited equity co-ops. And one of the co-ops that I look at in my book um, 
it was unusual in that it was started kind of from whole cloth. So it was not a tenant purchase effort, but rather it was a group of people came together and said, we want to start a limited equity housing cooperative. Um, and they got land crucially donated to them by the city to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the city had, it had, I think it was five or six vacant row houses that the city owned that they sold for a dollar to this um, organization to start a limited equity co-op. Um, and so because they didn't have any acquisition costs, they still had to raise the money to renovate the buildings. Um, but that was that they were able to do that because the city had given them the land. And, and I do think when we think more broadly about what we can do about the affordable housing crisis in cities around the country is, you know, cities still do own a fair amount of land and that land could be used um, to directly provide housing without the acquisition cost. Um, but I fear I'm getting off target from your original question. Here. <laughs> no, that feels like precisely <laughs> on point, right? It's, it's okay. messy and complicated. It feels like it's yeah. the takeaway. Yeah. going to yeah. vary well, okay, a lot so, from place to place and time to right. time. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of kind of, I do think, so the key uh, obstacles, I guess, are certainly financial. I mean, that's, going to be the big yeah. one is just in terms of acquiring the building and then also renovating it. I mean, one of the things that I saw over and over again in my research is that, you know, these tenants, by the time they were able to purchase their buildings from their landlords, the landlords had let the buildings fall into such terrible disrepair yeah. that it was actually much more expensive than for the tenants, now newly collective homeowners, to make the repairs that needed to be made to bring the buildings up to code. And so that's um, an unfortunate reality of the sort of real estate market is these landlords, you know, they're going to stop putting money into the building once they realize that they're not going to be able to sell it for the maximum price they could. And that's, that's one of the reasons that landlords are so opposed to this law is that um, they feel like it's sort of, they don't like being told who they can sell to, Um, even though they're getting supposedly market rate, price for the building, you know, they can't get into a bidding war that could bring the price up more, you know, it's, they would prefer to be able to sell it kind of not to the, not being told they have to sell it to the tenants. So point being that, um, that it can be really expensive for tenants to, and not just to make repairs, but also, you know, most of these buildings, many of them were um, buildings filled with one-bedroom apartments at the time that the tenants were living in them. And these were poor people, and so they were living um, with many people crowded into these one-bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it came time to purchase and renovate the building, in many cases they chose to, um, and by the time, because the purchase process is so long, and sometimes tenants drop out over the course of the process and say, you know what, I don't have any faith that this is going to work. I'm going to go leave and find housing elsewhere. Um, So you often end up with a building that's only half full of tenants by the time you actually complete the purchase. And so one of the things that a lot of um, newly formed co-ops do is they take two units and combine them um, to create uh, living quarters that more closely meet the needs of the families who actually live there. Um, And so that's great for those families. And it's, it's a way that they can kind of make the housing meet their needs in a better way. Um, But then it also reduces ultimately reduces the monthly income that they generate for themselves because they have fewer apartments. So, um, so that's, so one of the main challenges is financial, but I also think there's, um, you know, there's organizational challenges as well, for sure. And I think, 
Um, you know, and, and in some ways, I mean, the financial challenges are, are profound, but I think the organizational challenges are as well. And I think it's, um, you know, there's a real need to have um, a lot of support for co-op members. Um, and we actually have a fair amount of that support in DC, but I think we could do more in terms of having it be better coordinated. Um, we'd have, we have almost nothing in terms, there's not like a functioning network of limited equity co-ops in the city that get together regularly and share, you know, um, sort of share their challenges. And, and there's been some attempts to start that, which has never really taken off yet. I think it still could, but that's a challenge too. It's just, just sort of knowing how to operate this thing, you know, and, and how to do all that work. And, and what is it that you think the DC is doing well in terms of facilitating that? That's a good question. You know, because we have had this law on the books since the late 70s, um, but really since it's typically dated to 1980 is this Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act um, or TOPA. And so since that time, um, tenant associations have been using that law to buy their buildings. And so we have a few decades worth of experience. um, And there's really been a cottage industry of lawyers and nonprofit developers and housing organizers who have over the years gained a lot of experience working very specifically with these limited equity co-ops. So I think we have a wealth of experience in terms of the technical assistance piece, um, which is good. Um, I think, you know, the city does have this housing production trust fund, which is um, supposed, which is supposed to, um, focus on mostly on low income providing housing uh, funds for low income district residents. And so there is money set aside to do this kind of thing, um, which I, I think it's very important to have a dedicated funding stream, a local dedicated funding stream for, for affordable housing. And the city does that, which I think is good. Um, we definitely need a lot more, um, but I think that's a good first step. Is, and we have any any sale in the city of uh property has a um, deed and recordation tax on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, that tax goes directly into, um, into this fund. And so basically, the size of the fund is determined by the amount of buying and selling of property going on in the city in any given year. And so the idea is, the more frenzied buying and selling there is, the more money goes into this affordable housing fund. So that's a, yeah. a good thing. Um, so I think we're doing well with that. But I think we need to do a lot more in terms of um, supporting co-ops. And I think the city policymakers need to be better educated about the incredible important importance that these co-ops have played for low-income district residents. I don't think they realize um, how successful a lot of these co-ops have been. Um, and I, I think in particular, a lot of these co-ops are um, becoming what we might call naturally occurring retirement communities, um, mm. which are really, you know, older people who have lived in them for, for decades and who have been a part of creating these spaces um, who are now, you know, getting pretty old. And, but this is like, you know, their housing is still very affordable. They're in these neighborhoods that are um, very convenient for them. Um, and so I think we need to make sure the city understands how important this housing is for elderly people um, as much as for everyone else. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's hard. It's hard to hear you talking about the, the the sort of the the funding opportunities without thinking about what just happened in Seattle uh, with the, the the business tax, right? That was meant to uh, provide dedicated sources to alleviate homelessness, which is in some of the places you mentioned, right? Portland, Seattle, Los yeah. Angeles, 
and uh, city council just reversed that tax. Uh, oh, really? After uh, yeah, after outcry from Amazon and and the like, um, oh which God. of course highlights the challenges, right, of cities that are right. looking. To, to do this, and you know, we, we we should point out. I'm not sure that we have yet. Is that one of the the features of these limited equity housing cooperatives? This is the the limited equity part. Uh, is mm-hmm. that when a tenant vacate? Well, do you talk about what what happens when a tenant moves to sell their unit? Right, right, exactly. So so when a tenant purchase buys into the co-op, um, there is a set share price that the co-op determines. Um, for that, um, that what's called a share in the cooperative. And so in the DC case, and so there's actually, there's a lot of limited equity co-ops in New York City as well. Uh, DC and New York are the two main cities in the US where you see a a number of these. Um, The DC co-ops tend to work a little bit differently than New York. So if your listeners are familiar with New York's limited equity co-ops, the DC ones work a bit differently. And one of the ways that they work pretty differently is that the share prices to buy in are really very low. Um, in most of the DC co-ops, not all of them, but most of them. And so the share price to buy in might be $1,500 or $3,000 or maybe $10,000, but it's it's relatively a low amount. Um, so you buy your share for that amount and then you pay your monthly co-op fee, um, which is what keeps the building running, um, you know, pays off, helps pay off the mortgage on the building, pays for repairs in the building, that kind of thing. Um, and those monthly co-op fees are very low. In my analysis, I found that the um, the average monthly co-op fee uh, for a two-bedroom uh, unit in DC limited equity co-ops was about half of um, what the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development HUD um, calculates to be the fair market rent for the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so basically, they're about they're about half of the average rents is is the way to sort of think about it. So they're very affordable. Um, But once you go to sell your unit, um, you are only permitted to sell it for the amount, the share price for which you bought it, plus some um, small increase um, based on a formula that, you know, different co-ops might use different formulas, but usually it's something like the increase in the CPI. And so it's so, you know, if you buy in for three thousand dollars and then 10 years later, maybe you're selling for, you know. Thirty eight hundred dollars or four thousand dollars or something, but it's not, you know, it's very limited, the amount of equity that you're getting out of this housing. And so it's really not designed to help people build equity. This Um, is the decommodification that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And so, and again, it's not completely decommodified because people are still right. buying and selling shares, but it's so low um, that it's essentially been decommodified. And so, um, and so the purpose of that is to keep that housing affordable for the next generation of people who are moving into this co-op. Um, but, you know, this, uh, this policy or this sort of way of, of structuring the housing ownership has drawn a lot of critics who say, you know, home ownership is really the only way that one of the only ways that people can build wealth in this country. Um, and so if you're not allowing people to build wealth through their housing, then what is the point, you know, of, of creating this home ownership structure? Why should people should just be renting? I mean, there's no point. Um, and so that was really one of my main questions that I was asking people um, when I started my research was, why is this housing valuable to you? You know, you're not, it's ownership, but you're not getting thing, anything out of it financially um, and as an investment. Um, and so that, um, but it turned out people were getting a lot out of it 
um, but they were not getting wealth out of it. Now, some people could afford because their housing costs were so low, they could save money on the side. And then, you know, a few people that I talked to did ultimately move out of the co-op and buy a house um, in the same neighborhood. And that was sort of, you know, a, a personal success story for them that they were able to do that. But many of the people I talked to, they, you know, even with the low housing costs, their low monthly carrying charges they were paying, they could not um, afford to save much money. Um, because right. they just didn't have much money to save, <laughs> even if their costs were low. So, um, and so, yeah, so it's, um, it is a way, uh, it, it definitely does not en- enable people to build wealth. On the other hand, most of the people who are moving into these co-ops, you know, there's no way that they could have bought a house or a condominium on the quote unquote open market. I mean, that, that, that was just a total impossibility for them. So in, in some ways this, I, I see it, I mean, I, I consider it to be full collective home ownership, but I can also see explaining this as kind of a halfway between renting and ownership kind of model um, in terms of of that question of equity. But you, I mean, you do find that that in addition to the 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 affordability of it, that that tenants, I mean, they do see value beyond making a profit, and that's in yeah. um, the sense of control that they have, yeah. the sense of stability yeah. that they have of being yeah. able to know that they're going to have a place to live and the kind of community that comes with with, with that, yeah. that, that very form of organization, yes? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, and that was what really stood out to me in my interviews was these things that are valuable to people, even though they're not um, getting a financial... Um, return on this on their monetary investment they are you know the control that people had over their over their housing was really important for folks so um and and this to me is is really important is a a key point because um i think it's really important to preserve affordable rental housing and i think we need more affordable rental housing i think we need more public housing Um, but i think the thing that is so appealing to a lot of people about these co-ops is that they are owners and they do have control over their space in a way they did not have when they were renters um, and they can make all sorts of decisions about their space um, that give them a really strong feeling of, of, yeah, this is my space. I can determine, you know, not just things like how to renovate the units, but um, also uh, I can get together with my fellow co-op members and write house rules that determine how we're going to behave, to how we're going to live together here in this in this community we've built. And that, to me, the, the, something like the act of getting together to collectively write house rules and then figuring out how to enforce those rules. I mean, that to me is a classic instance of commoning and, and is um, the kind of thing that, um, that Ostrom and others have written about is sort of how do people write rules for living together? You know, and how do they enforce those rules? Um, and, and so I think that having the, the power to do that was, was, has been really important for people. Um, so yeah, having that control over the physical space, but also kind of the social space of the co-op is really important and something that people really did not experience as renters, um, at least in, you know, and, and interestingly, the people I um, interviewed, uh, a number of them, you know, all of them, uh, almost all of them had lived in rental housing before, you know, either they helped form their co-ops or some of them moved into these co-ops after they'd already been formed. Um, and folks lived in private rental housing and they lived in public rental housing. Um, but in either case, they had pretty bad experiences um, as renters living in housing that was dilapidated, housing that, um, you know, where the locks on the front doors of the buildings didn't work and anyone could come in and go out. And there was all sorts of chaos. Um, and so to be able to control their physical and social space was really important to people. And then, um, 
yeah, the sense of stability was also hugely important. I mean, in a co-op, you know, people do get evicted from co-ops. Um, you know, if you do not pay your co-op carrying charges, your monthly fees, um, the board at some point is going to decide, you know, we, we can't let this continue. Sure. Um, so it's, it's not that it's 100% guaranteed, but um, for the most part, you know, there is a very strong sense of stability. People know that, you know, they might have to increase their monthly fees, but they'll collectively decide and vote on, you know, how to do that. They're not going to get hit with some surprise rent increase, um, which should not happen in DC because of rent control, but there's all sorts of loopholes to get around rent control. So it it does happen that people get hit with surprisingly large rent increases. Um, And then, yeah, the sense of community that people built was also really important for them to have, that long-term community over time and the stability and community, I think were particularly important for people who are raising children in these co-ops because they just, you know, this stability, particularly for, for kids and, you know, not having to worry about getting evicted or having to leave because your housing has become too expensive was, was really important. You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Amanda Huron about her new book, Carving Out the Commons, Tenant Organizing and Housing Cooperatives in Washington, D.C. So, Amanda, as as we work towards signing off, tell us a little bit about what you are working on at the moment. What's next for you? That's a great question. I um, (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes a a mean question, right? (laughs) Well, it's a fun moment to be in right now, I have to say, because I've finished this book. And like I said, I've I've gone on a couple of book tours in the Pacific Northwest and California, um, New Orleans, Minneapolis, um, a bunch of talks here in D.C. and Baltimore. And so it's been really great to have the opportunity to go out and talk to people about this work, particularly people who are doing housing organizing in in cities around the country. And so, uh, and it's been great to just learn a lot about how folks are doing work in other places. So, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm really at a point right now where I've, I've got a couple of smaller projects that I'm doing and I'm kind of trying to figure out what's next in terms of a a bigger project. But some of the, um, some of the stuff I'm working on, one is um, a couple of projects looking at the history of the university where I teach. Um, It's the public university for Washington, DC. It's called the University of the District of Columbia. And got a fascinating history. Um, And so I'm working with some students on kind of uncovering that history. We're doing oral history interviews, and we're doing a lot of archival research, and we're going to be creating an exhibit on the history of the university um, Mm -hmm. for next year. So, um, and and I'm really interested, actually interested in in education as a form of of commoning as well, and kind of public education and really kind of creative creative attempts to create yeah, like uh, sort of really rigorous and innovative educational experiences um, in cities. And so that's one thing that I'm working on. Um, And then I'm also, you know, this didn't, I didn't really use this skill in the book at all. But one of the things that I do is map data. And so I do a lot with looking at um, sort of geospatial analysis of lots of different kinds of data. Um, and I'm working, I've just started working with a group of folks here in DC who are really interested in um, using mapping technology to look at eviction and policing. Um, and this is work that's inspired in large part by the anti-eviction mapping project, which is a uh, was founded yep. in the yep. Bay Area. Um, and so we've been talking to folks involved with that project and 
kind of thinking about how can we sort of visually represent the gentrification and displacement that we see going on in the city. Um, so I'm really excited about that project, which is kind of brand new. Um, and yeah, those are a couple of the things that I'm, that I'm working on now. I've also been asked to serve on a task force, um, a city task, city council task force, looking at how to better support limited equity co-ops in the city. Um, and so I'm going to be working with that over the, over the coming year um, and probably working with folks to put together a policy report for the city um, to kind of figure, think through um, how can we actually, you know, what kind of policy recommendations can we make to support this housing? So I want to, um, you know, use the, the research and what I've learned in writing the book um, to, you know, to hopefully make some change in the city in terms of better supporting this kind of housing. Um, and then finally, I'm also on the board of a great organization called Empower DC that does a lot of community organizing um, around the city with a big focus on anti-displacement work. Um, and so I'm, I'm working with them on a number of projects and uh, some of which are kind of just getting started, but mostly looking at questions of displacement um, and public housing preservation in the city. Yeah, that's that. Those are the main things that's I think right point. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Amanda Huron, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a total pleasure. It's been really fun. Thank you for inviting me.